Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. So, how are you? I am fine. Um, I talked to Michael Morewood last night or this morning, depending on what country you live in. <laughs> and I'm really excited about the webinar that he will be doing with us on the, August the 27th. He's such a solid guy. You know, I'm, I, I mentioned we were co-teaching on Sunday that I had discovered a YouTube video of his. If anybody is interested in doing that, if you go on YouTube and you just type in Michael Morewood and you are get one of the first hits, Michael Morewood revisioning the second half of life. Mm -hmm. There is also Michael Morewood's presentation when he was here with us last year is also on YouTube. Mm -hmm. and so people could uh, look at that if they wanted to. That's an hour, almost an hour and 40 minutes long. But the, the one that I'm talking about is 33 minutes long and it's great video quality and great audio quality. And he is just bringing to light mm -hmm. what, um, you know, the, the cosmology is telling us about how we have to re-envision re everything. And so that's, I'm, I'm excited about his doing that. I have no idea what he's going to talk about. Yeah. Well, I, I love one of the questions that um, both you have sort of pondered and that he posed is when we imagine that we are proceeding in faith or proceeding with the tradition from which we hail, the one that we grew up with and deepening it, what does it mean when we say we are praying to God, who is the God that we imagine when we are praying? And as you posed last week, who is the you that you imagine right. when you are praying? And this is, this really, it both complicates and simplifies this idea to me. The simplification is if I think of, and I agree with this, the world that we live in is our kingdom. It is not out there. Thank you wise teacher for just making that real for me for the last 20 years, you know, but, um, and I also believe that like what you put out, you get back like a kind of pay it forward type of idea. If I put out positive energy, and I don't mean this to sound so new agey or woo wooey, but um, I do believe that what you put out, you get more of, you create more of. And so I kind of think, well, praying can't hurt, mm -hmm. even if it's in a traditional format. But I also think what that requires me to do is to redefine what I think prayer is. And I really like the answer that prayer is more of a doing. I love Michael's question, and I'm going to bring it up Sunday when we are teaching. Uh, what are you asking me to imagine mm -hmm. when you invite me to pray? Right. And I have really, I put in several hours, Holly, working to get ready for Sunday. And I'm not sure right now precisely how to proceed. But yeah. um, 
what are we asking people to imagine when we invite them to hear the words that Jesus allegedly spoke in what we call the Sermon on the Mount? What are we imagining, uh, uh, inviting people to imagine about who he was, who he spoke to, what the original meaning of his words were, the relevance that they have for us. These are not comfortable questions to answer. And I've been really struggling with how do you say things that people don't want to hear in ways that make them open to hearing them? Mm -hmm. Because um, as you have said, these words that we have in the uh, Jesus database were not said to people on the top of the heap. No. And uh, that's where we are. I, I, wait, I have a gift for you. No, what's that? Uh, it's a gift of something that I bet you haven't heard. It's a new Hafiz piece. Oh, please do share. Yeah, yeah. Here it is. He wrote it just yesterday. I'm just kidding. He wrote it just for you. <laughs> I love Hafiz and he loves me back. Yeah. <laughs> What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? A saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God and that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I'm afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. Mm. Isn't that great? It's, yeah. So this is, his poems are also a really good example of dynamic, evolving words to me. Because in the mystical fashion, we can find meaning in them today a thousand years ago, and I would think even a thousand years from now, if we are still operating in kind of the written word, right? Yeah, the, the, what Jim Finley said to me one time is that the problem with most people who are attempting to be Christian is that they end up spending their time manipulating, changing, controlling, fixing, when that's not what it's all about at all. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like trying to make something static that just, it, it isn't static. You can't make it static. It's right. static. Right. And right. so if you remember last week in class, I said that whatever we come up with, we have to have the humility to know it is just as provisional as the stuff that we're struggling with that our mothers and fathers in the faith constructed. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's that raft that Buddha talked about that we use to cross the river and when we get there we put the raft aside we don't need it anymore mm -hmm. yeah you know and this is this goes back to thinking about diarmut omiroku's book um when the disciple comes of age too is that these are not old teachings meant to uphold old traditions and if we keep them stuck static and in the past we won't be transformed by them. So we also have to examine, and this is what I love of the Jewish tradition, for example, is this really 
critical questioning lens on, um, is this working? Is this working? Is this working? You know, you, you have to be denied three times. If you want to convert to Judaism, you have to, like you have to go through three rejections to get an accept, acceptance into conversion. And, and it is, I think, in part based on that tradition of questioning, questioning, questioning. What do we need to understand by this? So, so being really clear about that sort of dynamic or living quality, does it apply today? And if what we believe in doesn't apply today, what good is mm-hmm. it? That's, that's really the bottom line to me. And I would add to that, that we need to be aware of what assumptions we bring to all of our work. Anyway, I, I think that um, we, we live in a culture where we make a lot of assumptions about what other people think, what their words mean, and, and all of that. And it's, it's very um, efficient at times, but it's not very effective in the long run to really know what's on another mm. person's heart and mind. You have to mostly sit down and shut up and listen. And that's not efficient. So mm-hmm. anyway, I was thinking as I was doing my studying for Sunday about, uh, you know, I think Holly's right about what a title for Sunday would be. And that is, uh, Jesus, please take the wheel. Is that what you said? Well, that's what it reminds me of is when you hear people say, Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> so I'm not familiar yeah. with that phrase. Oh, really? Oh, oh. it just makes, it kind of makes me laugh because it is, um, there is this temptation where we do want to sort of like give up power, responsibility, the need to make decisions, the need to be um, uh, aware, decisive and incisive all the time. And so this temptation to just kind of be like, just tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, just do it for me, Jesus. And the truth is, is that if we were to say that, Jesus take the wheel, Jesus hands us the wheel right back and goes, well, why don't you put your hands on it with me? You know, come along for this ride and let's see where we end up. You know, we could end up in some kind of like Thelma and Louise right. picture where we're driving off the edge right. of a cliff holding hands. I don't know. <laughs> But, um, but that, to me, is the sort of playfulness of the Jesus take the wheel. All right. Well, you know, I, I think I sent to you a list. I don't, uh, I don't have them right now. I uh, can't find them. I sent you a list of the, of the qualities that are mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, empathy, compassion, yeah. humility, and so forth. They're everything this culture is not. Yeah. And they're everything this culture um encourages us not to be so back to my point about how are we going to say this in a way that causes people to be open to to hearing it well i so i started reading the um the richard Rohr book that you sent me the title of um Mm -hmm. jesus's vision or plan for a new world and i like the analogy of i'm not sure if i can quickly find the page but of being on the knife's edge and that saying means that if we're on if we're on that sort of razor's edge, it means that number one we have to pay attention mm-hmm. because if we step off that knife's edge on either side, it's a certain and unavoidable death, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, and, and number two, we have to be able to be in tension with wait for it, the no longer and the not yet. Right. <laughs> right. We have to be in that sort of tension of of 
letting go of old things that captured or captivated us and welcoming new ways um, that let us imagine the world we want to live in. And I right. think that this is how progress was only ever made is through the process of imagination, of imagining the world we wanted to live in. So what you just said reminded me of a metaphor that uh, one of my very first spiritual teachers gave to me. Uh, and he, he said, it's like this, imagine that you had a table that was infinite in length. Um, and at one end of the table, it wouldn't be infinite if it had an end, would it? All right, so it's a big table. <laughs> one end of the table, there is a, the dullest knife ever made. Uh -huh. And at the other end of the table, there is the sh sharpest knife ever made. And in between the dullest knife and the sharpest knife, there's a graduation right. from sharpness to sharpness to dullness, right? So in the middle, in the middle, you have this knife mm -hmm. that is the sharpest dull knife and the dullest sharp knife. And he said, find that knife and sit on it. Uh, <laughs> walking on broken glass. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you found something that is safe enough to be with, mm -hmm. but useful enough to carry forward. Right. And that's the way that spiritual teachings have to be. I think it's a wonderful metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we get into this kind of relativity because there's going to be different points for everyone where they find that sort of, um, you know, we think about personality structures that may be adrenaline based right or seeking thrills as a way to feel alive which is often related to some form of addiction or, or or mental illness that we call mental illness would seek the sharper knives you know would seek that and and so we have a long and i really do think that evolution on the big scale not just individually um we need that whole spectrum from the dull to the sharp mm -hmm. And that I think is that one of the, when you find yourself on that middle knife is one of the complexities to hold is what does it actually mean to say that it all belongs? What does it actually mean to say that the dullest knife to the sharpest knife, the very worst of human behavior to the very best of human behavior all belongs mm -hmm. in this spectrum. Mm -hmm. And out of everything that belongs, we are charged with the opportunity of making choices. Mm -hmm. We have to make choices. I was going to ask you, and I'll just put this out on the podcast, mm -hmm. because I think you may be better equipped to do this than I am. Mm -hmm. um, so here we live in a country that claims to be, quote, a Christian nation, and clearly that mm -hmm. we do not follow the teachings and values of Jesus. That's just, uh, that's just clear. So, um, you said last week, either in the podcast or when we were co-teaching, that in the beginning, at the time of Jesus, race was not a category. Mm -hmm. Caste system was a category. Tribal mm -hmm. systems was a category, but race is not a category. Mm -hmm. When did that get to be a thing? Really as, let's say, globalization began to happen, so as more 
adventurers or conquerors were sailing across to new lands and seeing new people that didn't look like them. Um, there became this awareness of, oh, there are differences in the human in the human being, right? Because ocean travel became a bigger deal. Um, the other piece of that is that this was not just a social realization, but from what I'm understanding from reading, so I mentioned Ibram Kendi last night to you in a text. Um, he's written a book, Stamped from the Beginning. He's written a book for kids of the same title called Stamped, a book on anti-racism. And he's written a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And he runs a center for anti-racism at Boston University. Stamped is about the history of race. So at the same time we have increased exploration, we have power systems, i.e. mostly European, deciding uh, laws, practices, and, and, and ways of existence that elevated one body of people and the disempowered another body of people. So we begin to see that laws are put into effect around race. And that's really when racism began to be a form of domination. I think caste systems, as you say, classism, tribe, tribalism, this has been part of human history for so long. But when it became prescribed to race was around this time of exploration, domination, conquering of other lands. And so therefore, if one land can conquer another, the people in it are less valuable. But it's his book stamped is really good. I'm not doing a very good job of, of reiterating what he says. So um, I heard a stand-up comedian the other day do a piece on sugar. Mm -hmm. And he said, the medical profession and nutrition people now know that sugar is not good for you raw sugar mm -hmm. not healthy for you and he said that he could imagine a day when sugar would be looked at like people now look at smoking cigarettes mm -hmm. and he said that he would be we would be able to tell our great great grandchildren there was actually a time when trucks drove up and down the street playing music to entice children to come out of their houses and pay money to buy sugar in a cold form that they could eat. Yeah. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could say, it's hard to believe, but there was a time when we rejected people because of their sexual orientation. Can you imagine? Right. And then wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get to a time when we said, can you imagine there was a time when the color of your skin made a difference? Mm -hmm. It's so superficial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward to next week when we have as our guest on our podcast, Dr. Jeff McDonald. Yeah who could give us some enlightenment about what in heaven's name is going on with the Methodist church. And this, this makes me take a giant step back and put a little macro, a little macro lens on something, which is one of those paradoxes that don't go together. But um, when we think about, I've said this before, when we think about sort of like cosmic evolution, that uh, everything goes through a period of, individuation or differentiation 
before it complexifies and then communes. And so that, you know, this, the example that I so often use is the example of a single cell that starts out as, um, you know, a zygote, an embryo, right? That, that is a single cell that then divides and divides and divides. It, it, in each cell division creates a new specification within the body. So at a certain time, the lungs are formed. At a certain time, the heart is formed. At a certain time, the spinal cord is formed. And eventually, all those differentiated pieces must form together as a whole. And I've, I've just really been wondering if that is the sort of level of biological and cosmic evolution from specification or differentiation and then back to communion. Is that also possible on a social level? As a species, we're so young. I mean, we, we really are a very young species, human beings, I mean. And as a country, we're even younger, you know? So, so I wonder if on a social level, do we all, is it also necessary to go through an extended period of differentiation mm -hmm. yeah. in order to understand what communion is? You know, I misheard you when you said, as a species, we're very young. I thought you said dumb, and I said, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you were ready to I jump onto that one. That. But yes, we're both young, and we're not enlightened. We're not, um, we don't behave in our, our own enlightened self-interest, and we yeah. think we do by trying to grab power and control and security and, and all of that. My response to what you said is that uh, I really like uh, the pattern that Richard Orr has been writing about last week and this week in his daily meditations, that the, the process of uh, movement for an individual and for groups of individuals, meaning societies and, and cultures and countries, is that we fight to get some sense of order and identity and then we experience disorder and then there is a rearrangement of new order and this just doesn't happen one time in history it's a pattern that goes on over and over and right now what we are experiencing in, in american culture is an extreme amount of disorder because of the virus and because of uh, the apocalypse, as you call it, mm -hmm. uh, racial unveiling, racial injustice unveiling. And um, I, I've been reflecting that I hope that the disorder doesn't stop because if it does, the human tendency is going to be to want to retreat into the order that we thought we had, mm -hmm. and it will not give an opportunity for a birth of reorder. Right. And um, I, so I don't know how to read the culture. So much is going on in uh, with the election process and this struggles between the right and the left. Yeah, it's it's interesting, I think, too. And I, I don't want to say that I think Richard Rohr is wrong and I don't want to early criticize him. But I do wonder when I think when I read people like Richard Rohr or Pierre Thierry Deschardins falls in the same category. Um, you know, these are... Uh, these are white, Euro or American men. When I read liberation theology, for example, liberation theology, it is birthed from within a movement, birthed from within a community. So I think about James Cone birthing a theory of black liberation or Mary Daly birthing a theory of, uh, uh, of feminine liberation in, and um, in the Jesuit tradition that the South American birthing of a new of a new order, right? 
from, from the people, from the ground up. And someone like Richard Rohr, or I'm also going to use Pierre-Terre Desjardins, sits at that sort of top of the social food chain, if you will. So how might their views be seen or deconstructed from the edges, from mm -hmm. those who are marginalized historically or who have been historically underrepresented? You know, it, sometimes I feel like I'm in this tension of um, wanting to be so hopeful that maybe this disorder is becoming ordered or this differentiation is heading towards communion. But it's somewhat easy for me to be hopeful because I've never been fully on the margins. And I just am thinking that part of that disorder is like a complete reimagining. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if mm -hmm. how hard that is for those of us who have never been actually pushed to the margins. I don't know. It's where I am grappling with my own despair too. You know, these systems that we, as we have talked about, if we say our nation isn't a Christian nation, but this is what Christianity has become, who's to say it's not a Christian nation? Mm -hmm. We've created Christianity to become what it is. It's not a Jesus nation. It's not a Christian nation. Mm. And, and let's just we'll go way back. Uh, it's never been a Christian nation. And that, that may be startling for some people to hear, but remember that this country was built on two very horrible original sins, that of the decimation of Native Americans and that of owning African Americans. And there is no way that you can say those things fit in the teachings of Jesus. They don't. Right. And that's where I differentiate between Jesus and Christian. Yeah. We're not a Jesus nation. Mm -mm. But if Christianity became that, then it makes me go, we need to reimagine Christianity. You know, it, it just, that, that's kind of what I'm saying. It's like democracy, right? Yeah. We say we're a democratic nation. But if this is the way democracy works, then what do we need to reimagine it to be? So let, let me say a word of intense criticism and praise for Richard Rohr. And I would say this about mm -hmm. myself as well, or any of the other people that I talk about, uh, that, that would include people like Marcus Borg and Teilhard de Chardin and Ilya, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Those, we all are trying to speak in a reimagining, reformulating way about a religious tradition that we inherited um, in being born in the, into the tribe that we did, and that, that's Christianity. So um, as Michael Morwood said to me in front of the crowd that we had last year, you're part of middle management. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Middle I do remember that. Management of an organization. Yeah. And so I stand within that organization trying my best to speak words of reformulation uh, and reformation to and about that organization. That's one of the great things, by the way, about the Judeo-Christian tradition is that its strongest critics have always spoken from within it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what the Jewish prophets were, that's what Jesus did, and so forth. At the other, on the other side of that, that's, so that's my word of praise. My word of criticism toward me, Roar, Ilya, and all of them is 
that it's very easy to create the impression that Christianity is the best mm -hmm. or the only or the right. Mm -hmm. And it isn't. It's just a way. It's a way to try to find practices and communities that will contribute to liberation and, and transformation. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah, I think that's a really good point because you're right. It's all, it's trying to use the the body in which we were born in to make a new body, right? Um, right. And that is part of our imperative. It is up to it is up to white folks to dismantle white supremacy. You know, it's not mm -hmm. black folks' job or Latinx mm -hmm. people's job. It's 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 white folks' job to dismantle white supremacy, which means we have mm -hmm. to be on the inside of it and tell the truth about it. Mm -hmm. And in the religious context, I sometimes think that the ideas that are coming from wonderful thinkers that, that you just mentioned, sometimes to, 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 to push them even further, to keep evolving them, we may even need to take them out of God talk altogether. But what does this have to do with the believer as much as it has to do with the agnostic or the atheist? So how do we take it even outside of the context of of religion and say this is like a human imperative. I, I think right now that my passion and it has been so for most of my academic conscious professional life is that I want to um, contribute to people who make assumptions about let's say the Bible or the teachings of Jesus that are so incorrect mm -hmm. that um, I want to make this contribution as I, I call it to religious literacy. Um, I grew up assuming that Jesus had the Bible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I know this is incredibly naive, but as a small kid, uh, I grew up thinking Jesus was a Baptist and he went to church on Sundays and sure. Wednesday nights and all of that sort of stuff and nothing could be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and my people who take quote the Bible, literally, there wasn't a Bible to take literally till the 13th <laughs> or 14th century. Right. So, you know, taking Jesus literally means taking him metaphorically. That's right. And yeah. So we we will get to that as we go forward through this collection of material. Yeah. And you are so clearly more the sort of biblical scholar and um, Jesus scholar than I am. Um, I feel a little like an outsider <laughs> coming in, even though it's the tradition in which I was raised as well. But, um, but really when I think about the entire meaning of the Jesus story, it's about transformation. And this is where we got into last week. It's, it's, it's personal and collective. What impacts the personal impacts the collective. What impacts the collective impacts the personal, right? It's this ongoing circular move um, or maybe spiral move that keeps expanding in two directions. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing that I was thinking about is when we were a child, we thought like a child. As we've grown, transformed, expanded, that childlike thinking doesn't serve anymore, right? You know now that Jesus wasn't a Baptist who met on Wednesdays and Sundays and um, dunked his head in water. Well, he did dunk his head in water, apparently, but, <laughs> but what are transformative moments that have happened for you or over the course of life? And one of the ones I asked you about through relationship to your caregiver, Ruth, 
what you understood as a child is different than what you understand as an adult. Mm. Um, and how that transformation also impacts ideas around liberation, mm -hmm. justice, and compassion. Well, I, I, I think that um, I think that I had this innate sense when I was a child that I was unfairly judged. That, uh, and I'm sure that comes from my own family of origin dynamic, which thank God I had an opportunity to, to have some serious therapy, family, family of origin therapy with while my parents were still both alive and had more insight into that. But I, I grew up with this sense of, of feeling judged for something over which I had no control. So when I became sensitized to the attitudes that people in my family and community had mm. about colored people, they were called in my youth, I was already by that time in love with Ruth because uh, she took care of me, told me stories, made my food, stuck up for me with my mother. I mean, I can remember her saying to my mother, now, Mrs. Curley, don't you be hard on that boy. I mean, she was an advocate for me. Mm. And then, and then I, I, I experienced that she was being judged for something over which she had no control. Mm -hmm. And that's about as far as it went in my youth and up through high school till I got somewhat involved in the civil rights movement. I wish Ruth were alive today. I'd love to have a conversation with her. She died um, a number of years ago. Thank God when Sherry and I first got together, I had an opportunity to take Sherry to Tennessee to meet mm -hmm. Ruth and to, because I talk about her all the time. And so she, she got to know her. But I wish she were still alive. I'd love to talk to her about her sense of what's going on in the culture since George Floyd's death. And, um, you know, I, I, I also wonder, and, you know, I don't want to pretty this up in any way. Yeah. Ruth lived in that part of Columbia, Tennessee that we call Colored Town. She lived in a house that was barely more than a shack. And there were times when my parents would leave town overnight and I would spend the night with them. Mm -hmm. So they trusted her implicitly, but mm -hmm. judged her horribly. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I'm answering your question. but Yeah, well, you know, it's just I, the example I was sort of toying around with was is really my relationship to um, economic well-being um mm. i i was taught as a kid that i was lucky um both because of the color of my skin and because of our financial security and that sense of being lucky somewhere along the line made me realize well there must be someone who's unlucky and as i began to question things more and more i I asked the questions, well, what does that mean that I'm lucky? And I once got an answer, you're lucky to be white. And that didn't sit well with me because I didn't 
think other folks were unlucky over something which you name. We had no control over who and what we were born into. I had nothing to do with the economic security that I was born into, and yet I didn't inherited its benefits. See, I, I, don't, I cannot remember ever being taught or told that I was lucky. Mm -hmm. The implicit message in my family and culture, it wasn't explicit. I mean, nobody ever said this, right. but it was certainly implicit that we were entitled. Yes. And that, and, and so what I sort of like came of age with is like, oh, I have something that other people don't. Therefore, I will give it to you. This kind of bestowance or... Um, uh, you know, it, it, it is its own patriarchal thing. Like, I have a gift to give you that you need. And so, you know, I, I was also taught an extreme amount of generosity, that if you have, you give. But that giving can sometimes be still entrenched in a power dynamic. I have something that you need, and I will decide when and how to give it to you. Mm. As I've gotten older, of course, I began to then examine, oh, there are economic structures in place that keep certain groups of people, specifically in our country, black folks mm -hmm. and a lot of Hispanic immigrants as well, um, from achieving a certain amount of economic success because of generational and systemic racism. And I didn't, yeah, I, did, I just didn't know that stuff was at play. I thought that I was, that my parents did something right and other people right, did something right. wrong. That's what I was going to say is that the yeah. message that I got was we had this because we somehow deserved it and they could have it too if they just worked hard enough. Right. That, that was kind of it. like everybody has access to this. It's just a matter of whether, and, and my dad did have some understanding too of like some of it's being in the right place at the right time. Some of it's, you know, he, he realized my predecessors sort of pass some of that uh, luck, if you will, on. And, but, you know, at some point you begin to look at the system that you're, you have benefited from and say, it doesn't actually work the way I thought it did. It isn't actually equal You know, Holly, when I first, um, I graduated from high school on the eve of the Supreme Court's uh, decision to desegregate public education. So that was also the, wow. the, as, as people began to sense that we were moving in that direction, that was the beginning of all the Jim Crow stuff that, that happened mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. all of that. Mm -hmm. But when I got involved in that, the people who were closest to me, my parents, my brother, um, his wife, he was married before, long before me, um, they um, greeted my involvement in civil rights by saying, you're misguided. I mean, if you really wanted to do something about an issue of injustice in this country, you should be working for Native Americans. And I never realized until maybe just a few years ago that that was a way to deviate my energy away from something that they knew in their hearts was wrong. But if I got right. involved in exposing it, it was going to involve their values and, you know, all of that. Right. And that would cause a lot of trouble, which I did. Well, that can really be challenging for our parents. And I'm sure that my kids will expose something about me 
as they grow up that I'm like, oh, I didn't want, I don't want people to know how much I really swear, you know, or whatever. Uh, I think it may be turned <laughs> but, out to be something other than that. You know, we, I think so too. Uh, I'm just using. We got to, we got to go, but that reminds yeah. me a number of years ago, we were in Dublin, Ireland when they were celebrating something like their 500th anniversary or something. And we saw kids on the street in Dublin uh, with all these tattoos and all these strange mohawk colored hairdos and body piercings. And they were married and they had small children. I mean, like infants. And mm -hmm. Sherry said, it's mm -hmm. going to be interesting when those kids grow up to see how they rebel. Right. After, <laughs> they're all going to enter the monastery. <laughs> That's right, right, right. I mean, you know, we all grow up with these sort of um, expectations about our reality and those realities are blown out of the water at some point. That's what individuation looks like on right. a personal level and also on a spiritual level. And I, I am learning as a parent that my job is to be a soft place to land, not to not allow my kids to evolve consciousness right. in their own way. And they will, they'll find their way. Just like we yeah. did. You go yeah. and you fall down yeah. and you get up and that's how you make sense of things. I must go. Alrighty. Good Th to Thank you for this. You. Absolutely. Um, we'll see you on Sunday. Okay. Mm -hmm.